0: This is John Cackley for Centric Biz and Tech Talks. Today we have a very special episode. We're commemorating Centric Consulting's 20-year anniversary, and to do this we've brought together the Mount Rushmore of Centric, the four amigos, the true heartbeats of Centric. They are Dave Roosevelt, Eric Van Leuven, Larry English, and Jeff Lloyd, and we're going to travel with them on the Wayback Machine to the earliest days of Centric to get the stories behind the myths. We're going to ask the hard questions. Who is Centric Consulting? How did it get this way? And where are we going next in our quest to be a multi-generational, 100-year organization? Taking this in the Wayback Machine, so Centric was founded in 1999. Now, I don't have all the exact history on this, so what years did the four of you each join?
1: Eric and I were first, I think, in 99 Mm -hmm. um, as president and CEO. Eric was CEO as president.
2: I thought you were secretary.
1: uh, President Roosevelt. And I think we had two jobs, (laughs) didn't we? Secretary and
2: I don't know, but it, those, those legally those you have for. to have a president and a secretary. Okay. Um, uh-huh. Dave was okay. upset there was not a president Roosevelt. Yeah, no, no. Well,
1: I thought I was president.
2: I was president. You were president.
1: Okay. Yeah, I think you, you were yeah. CEO.
0: So we set yeah. the tone for you know a strict hierarchy and yes. definition of roles for, right from the beginning yeah absolutely.
1: So no, we were in the office with the lawyer for the uh, LLC, and they were asking that, and we hadn't really talked about it before. So that literally is how we decided that President Roosevelt was the driving factor there. I think we had two two maybe more contractors that uh, were working in conjunction with us at a utility. So we were all working as independent contractors at that point, and we were doing deregulation kind of work. So the, okay. the, the, the project we were working on as independents was going to be winding down towards the end of 99, if I recall. It, it occurred to Eric and I and that we needed to um, uh, get work in the future. and Of course, we had talked about that leading up to 99. And uh, so that's why we formed a company. There was a software product, is, which is um, being generous to call it a software product, that also we were going to try to sell. That was to support re- deregulation and utilities. We were starting to realize that we had to find our next gig. So that's how the company kind of got formed. Uh, the product was really uh, Eric's. He was instrumental in getting it sold and then was, of course, staffed on it as well. And the client needed more people and more help. Beyond what three or four of us could provide, and we set to uh, recruiting people, uh, you know, to, to join early on. So we were having some success, and I think at that time, so I think Larry, you joined in 2000.
3: Is that correct? Uh, April of 2001. Yeah. Well,
1: 2001.
3: Um, so, so that's right. Go ahead. Yeah. So I had been talking to Dave and Eric, and I kind of knew what they were had going, but I was at one of those high flying dot coms with, you know, they had a hockey stick stock price. So I said, you know, I'm good. And then um, around 2001, you know, the dot bomb started to happen, the crash started to happen. And, you know, it was very clear that I was at a company that had an unsustainable cost structure. And we were doing a lot of unnatural things to prop up the stock price and um, learned about um, all the things that are not good to do. And so started up the dialogue again with Dave and Eric I had been part of a model where we kind of built out multi-city consulting offices. And so we started talking about what Centric would eventually be in that model. And uh, we started to get excited about that. And um, that's when I started to uh, work on coming
0: on board. Hey, do you guys know any story about Jason and Chad?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So Jason and Chad and I were all at the same dot bomb that I mentioned. And so when we came on board to to get Centric going, we were originally called Practical Solutions, and I had told Dave and Eric that I thought that was not a really great name at all and um, that we needed a better name. And the other part was Dave and Eric didn't believe that this multi-city model could work. <laughs> and so we created a separate company and we created a separate brand. Whoa, um, wait, wait, uh, can I
1: correct that real quick?
3: We believe it
1: would work. Larry had a the little... Uh, Sales idea where he basically would wanted permission to go to our the clients and say, um, "The bill rates hundred bucks an hour, but you can just pay us whatever you think is appropriate after you've worked with our team for uh, a uh, a month." So basically, put our our entire fees at risk on anything. So we kind of like that, but it was a little scary. So that is why we believed in the multi city, the, the the little sales <laughs> pitch their thing was kind of kind of kind of crazy and it actually worked but but uh we it, you didn't know that when he came up with that but go, anyway go ahead with us yeah it there did
3: there. it did correct, work but ultimately yeah. it clients did not value that that concept and we abandoned it um <laughs> but back to the original uh story was we had to come up with a brand name and so I had come up with Centric, which is meant to be centering everything around client and employee happiness. And Jason and Chad had come up with the name Veracity. And so we were kind of uh, come to impassable point. And so to do the tiebreaker, we went to the branding company that was gonna help us create the logo. And um, they came back and they're like, hey, do you guys want ass in your name? And so (laughs) Centric won.
1: (laughs) That is a true story.
0: All right. And Jeff, how did you join the circus? Last one to the show, Centric
4: had already kind of formed the business model. Uh, Columbus was running, and uh, Centric was ready to open up the next office in Cincinnati. So I think it was late 2001, Larry approached me about leaving Arthur Anderson, which had just been indicted after the whole Enron debacle. I somehow believed that we were going to stay in business. I was like, hey, it sounds really cool what you're doing, Larry, but I am probably going to stay here. I'm up for partner good things to come so after a 6 month recruiting cycle and an indictment uh, of Arthur Anderson I decided that this was the best journey forward for me so I think officially starting in July of 2002
0: okay the founding story is also talk a lot about the economy and I just want to sort of reflect back with the economic situation Larry you mentioned sort of the dot bomb era it was also you know Y2K was actually winding down in 99 because most of the work had been done and we were hitting a nationwide recession so, you know, what else do you remember about the economic situation and, and did you sort of have any doubts about what you were doing uh, <laughs> given that situation? Oh
3: yeah. Um so the other part was that 9/11 was about to happen. And after that, everything just basically cratered. And so if you could think about the worst possible environment to start a business, that's what we were trying to do. I would say in retrospect, it was a good thing because it was, you know, if you can survive through that, you can you can manage through anything.
1: Yeah, it was kind of weird. There was the dot-com bubble, which was, I think, spring, second quarter of 2001. And that was really the first time technology portion of our economy had really been in a recession, I think, and... So it was very unsettling, I remember, because I remember talking to my dad when we started the company and telling him that I never had to worry about getting a job. So starting your own company, there's really little risk to it. So that was scary. And I felt like it was coming back. I remember feeling more optimistic by the end of uh, summer of 2001 and then 9-11 happened and then it just seemed to get worse. And the 9/11 was followed by the Enron and Arthur Anderson stuff that Jeff alluded to. So really, we had three kind of bad things happen within the course of a year. And a lot of our work at that time was in the utility industry. So the Enron obviously affected the utility industry very negatively. So those were pretty scary times. And, you know, certainly we worked hard to get through it. But we, I think, we also were had some fortuitous things happen to us that allowed us to get through it as well.
3: In that first year after i joined we really had one client and i remember dave called me late at night he's like hey i think we're gonna lose our contract here which would would have meant basically we were done as a company um so there's you know there's certainly like everybody says when they start a business there is a huge amount of luck also involved in making it through kind of those first couple of years the other thing i remember is just telling a few people what i was about to go do and you know, in that climate. And, and the reaction was, you know, you guys are crazy for even thinking about doing this. And if you look back on it, you're like, man, if if I would have known how much was involved in trying to get this off the ground, would I have done it?
1: It helps to be naive in some ways.
0: That's, that leads to my next question. So, you know, it's one thing to go, oh, we're going to do another project because you, you'd done projects before. What happened when you realized that you were really running a business and you had to do things like collect bills and, you know, Right. payroll?
2: I had opened a, a Great Clips franchise with my sister a few years prior and had some um, experience in having to deal with payroll and taxes and so forth. So it was not a total mystery as far as running a, a business. Um, it was kind of something I had always um, thought I'd want to do. I'd w- watch my dad do it growing up. But I, I do remember the uh, the payroll thing was, was funny. We used to pay once a month until just a few years ago back then it was once a month after Dayton power and Light paid us and this is definitely where Schaller, uh shined he rendered the um, the accounts payable folks at DPNL so that we knew when we were going to get paid uh, and that we could turn around and then pay everybody else that is. Uh, an interesting way to run a business. You, you can't do it for very long. You know, as you grow more people, people want a little bit more stability and predictability when they get paid. we got uh accountant involved too. I, I Dave had some crazy lawyer accounting guy. I don't know if he was an accountant. He had a crazy lawyer guy in in, uh, in Decatur. Was he an accountant? Do you remember that guy, Dave? I, you
1: know I do, about? but I don't know why I'm getting saddled with him. Uh, yes. well, no. I, I, I,
2: I, I was like, I, okay, I, I like you. I thought you picked him. I didn't no, that. no, I, I, went, I, got I was a place like, for that? No, okay, we had a lawyer and we had an accounting guy and the lawyer was was okay, though he didn't stay with us uh, for that long. The accounting guy was like, I was like, dude, we got to find somebody else. And we had to find health insurance too. So we found a health insurance broker who referred us to uh, Denise Martin. But I remember driving up to Champaign to talk with her and interview her and so forth. And, and I, I think I still have a memo of, of what I brought uh, to there. It was a lot of wacky questions i had no idea what we were doing so i mean we ran we ran the company for the first few years in quicken not quickbooks and quicken which i I think horrified the accountant yeah no.
1: the uh a couple of stories there tidbits one is you know to john's point or question about you know invoicing and so on uh, so some things, you know, through hard work and you know elbow grease worked out. But uh, such as invoicing and talking to the client about uh, please pay in our invoices quickly so we could, you know, get put food on the table. But but a good example is the first business card I had a logo for the company looked pretty cool, and we had asked Eric's wife Christy to <laughs> create the logo, and I think we actually printed business cards, if I'm not mistaken, with this logo. And I'm looking yeah. at it, and I'm like, wow, it looks great. You know, I was impressed. You know, Eric's wife, Christy, is pretty creative Subconsciously familiar. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it, but it seemed a little familiar. It was actually the uh, Microsoft Office logo with different colors made from blue. Large. Yeah, it was, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: I think and the so puzzle pieces like, were moved around can't, a
1: little differently. They can't, but, um, so I can't, can't do that. So so that's an example of when you're starting The other thing about, Eric made reference to Denise Martin, and it's really kind of tied to how Jeff got on board. A big driver for us in recruiting Jeff beyond Cincinnati was he has a lot of Oracle experience. We had won this project work largely because of Jeff, and I'm not even sure Jeff was actually part of the company quite yet, but he was working behind the scenes. And uh, it was really instrumental project that kind of got us through some of those uh, bad economic times. It was an Oracle implementation, and we didn't really have but one person that knew anything about Oracle. So it was one of those kind of deals. But to do it, we had to do a performance bond. But for those who don't know, the performance bond means that you put up your personal assets to back the the the, the project. So if the project is for a million dollars and it costs $1.5 million, you know, or you're running over the client can say, well, we're going to bring a, another a company in since you're not going to get it done on time and, and they can finish it and if it turns out to cost more than a million dollars then you guys have to pay the difference you know to, to back that up you know we had to put houses on the line and stuff like that so anyway but to win the work all we had to do is get this performance bond our accountant at the time the, the guy that uh, eric referred to as being kind of weird was unresponsive to helping us solve this problem and so eventually i called we got a hold of denise and 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 she got us a performance bond and we had three days to get it and she got it in a day and a half or something and we won the work and projects went fine. You know, that was a big driver to switching to Denise because she did that for us. Yeah. So
4: the, uh, one thing I'd like to share relative to that too, is if you think about it in those early days, the company, it wasn't necessarily much, right? It, it was a group of people doing some projects and that's not downplaying that there was a lot that were trying to make happen and build infrastructure, but we're trying to recruit really successful people who were having success in their careers and saying, hey, come join. When you really dig under the covers and say, what are you joining? You're joining a a concept, a vision, and it was easy to get excited about it because there's a great model behind the company. When recruiting Greg Clem into the company, whose wife uh, was an audit manager at Arthur Anderson, as she kind of went back and drilled him with questions to say does it really make sense to quit Accenture and go join Centric? drags coming back with questions like, who writes the checks for the company? Do they have a bank account? Have they ever processed or missed payroll? And I was like, I don't know. He goes, well, have you ever seen the bank accounts? I'm like, no, I don't know. Uh, it made you realize that, ah, you know what, we've got this figured out. We'll get there. But uh, it was a lot to try to get people to switch over and join. And they were joining on passion and excitement. Probably more than soundness <laughs> of the company
3: at that point. She didn't believe we were a real company until about five years after he'd been here. <laughs> <laughs>
4: I think she still has to. I'd forgotten
1: that stuff, though. I'd forgotten. It was much harder to recruit because I would oftentimes recruit somebody and then they'd agree to come on. So like on Thursday, they'd agree to give notice on Friday, you, you know, that type of thing. And, you know, so Thursday during the day that happens or that they, they, we agree. Verbally, I send the, the offer letter and um, that I get a call Thursday night and the, the, the person would want to get their spouse on the call. And I would really have to recruit both the, the actual person we're recruiting and their spouse because of all the questions, you know, that people had.
0: Cool. So uh, let's talk about some of the surprises, you know, because you've talked about some of the personal evolution going on here. What were you surprised to discover you were good at in running a business? <laughs>
3: Skill, that, skills or talents
0: you Skills or talents you didn't know you had. It. Okay. We'll go to another question. What part,
1: what part of, what <laughs> I was I was leaving you? it. I I was gonna let someone else talk. i been
0: Oh okay. Oh up some, you know,
1: like, Larry, do yeah. you
4: have something to say? Jeff or
0: <laughs> somebody. Um, I'll,
3: I'll jump
4: in, honestly, um and I say that I'm still still trying to figure out all the things uh or a that it might be good or great at, but I do remember joining and thinking that I'm not a sales guy, and I still know that I'm not a sales guy, and Larry trying to convince me that no, no, it's going to work out just fine and um, and really, sales in our model is driven a lot more by reputations or, uh, relationships and how you how you build relationships with people. him trying to convince me of that uh, in the earlier stages was was tough, but also trusting that Heck, don't go out and sell it to anybody. Just go out, talk to the people you know, figure out if there are ways that you can help them. Not sell to them, but just find ways to help them. And that process really proven itself out has just been remarkable. And I think it really spreads across the company now, even in terms of how we sell to our clients. We probably have to continue to be a little bit more proactive and, and even assertive of how we do it. But foundationally, it just comes down to if you really are trying to help the people you know and they can trust that and care about that or trust that you care about them, it yields great, great results. So that was a an awakening for me. Jeff,
3: I remember, you know, recruiting you, uh, um, probably bordering on stalking for six months, finally talk you into it. And uh, I remember you went home and you said you laid in bed that night and you're like, I can't do this. I can't. There's no way I can do this. (laughs) It was all the things that you just said and and you were great at it. For me, it was um, that culture was our secret sauce. We kind of started out and, and we were building a place that we all wanted to be and we thought we had something special, but we just didn't realize how important culture was and how it kept everybody here and ultimately made us, you know, such a strong company. Starting out, I would have never realized that culture was that important.
0: Cool. All right, let's let's move to a new new topic uh, at the movies. So, here are a number of the top ten grossing movies in 1999. I want you to think about this and uh, ask each of you which one of them would you say influenced you the most and why. So we have uh, Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, Notting Hill, The Mummy, The Matrix, Toy Story 2, The Sixth Sense, and Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. I'm sure these were all critical influences, but I, I'm looking for I, I the one that really that. made it for you.
2: Well, I, I'm gonna. Before I answer that, the Austin Powers movie I showed to my kids. Uh, it, every now and then, I expose my uh, children to to movies that I thought were funny, and I remember watching that movie and thinking, "Boy, this did not age well." <laughs> <laughs> this this movie's really bad. My kids were just like, eh. So anyway, um, and I also showed him Animal House one year and some other ones like that. So that, that uh, it was always a disaster when I when I decided to uh, expose my uh, children to my cinematic culture. But uh, to answer the question, The Matrix is the only movie that really pops out there. And, you know, at the time, that was really a, a, a mind boggling uh, movie. I had to watch it a couple times before I even understood it. So that is my answer.
3: OK, I, I oh. pretty much only watch comedies. Um, so, um, it, Austin Powers would be mine. And really, what it translates to is you know having fun um, as a company. Okay. Yeah,
4: just hearing you give that list, I would not have guessed one of those, which made me realize that I don't even think I went to movies in 1999.
2: You're although busy. recognizing
4: some of those. Yeah, I don't
2: think I've seen the others other than Austin Powers and Matrix. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's I just not a, it's not
4: really
2: a didn't movie see them in time. 1999. I think in 99, I was still watching reruns of Fletch
4: and uh, Trading Places. <laughs> Which are still good. Nice, <laughs> But I, I would go with Matrix, honestly, too, because my mind works that way. Yeah, kind of the puzzle piece. You know, uh, there's always a tear that wells up on the uh, Toy Story movies as well. So okay.
1: we can start calling Jeff Neo, I think, is what what we got out of that. The Oracle. The Oracle. <laughs> That's
4: <Oracle. laughs> what brought me, to, uh, brought me to Centric.
0: That's right. So... What differences do you see in business from 1999 to now? And do you think it'd be harder or easier to start Centric today?
2: I think it'd be a lot harder. I think, um, you know, it's it's weird. You look back on in 1999, and it's hard to remember that both email and cell phones, I mean, I, I know cell phones have been around for 20 years, but I, I don't think I got my first cell phone until, until 1995. And I don't know that I really had a, or used email until the uh, uh, mid or later 90s. And- you know, those are both technologies that allow you to start a business in a way that you could never do before. Uh, this whole concept of a virtual company with no office space, uh, people looked at us uh, like we were funny. But it, it's its a hard thing to have pulled off much earlier than when we started. And and I would say now I have no idea other than I would think the the um, um, environment would be much more competitive in terms of small businesses. It's 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 cheaper to, to open a business, go in business for yourself. And so I, I think there'd be more people out there. And so I, I think we had pretty good fortune in terms of uh, the timing things and starting a company.
3: And this is coming from a guy that still has a flip phone. <laughs> I do have a flip
2: phone. I, it's in my desk. I can plug it in, power it up.
3: I, I might take a contrarian view. I, I think maybe not our business, but I think, Businesses in general, it's easier to start because there's so much disruption and it's creating so many new business opportunities that just didn't even exist because the technology creates them. And so for us as a company, I'm excited. about it. Mean, we've, we've spun out our first software company, and um, I think there'll be more opportunity to do that.
0: All right. So uh, Dave, I've got a question here. I was I've been paid to ask you this question, mm-hmm. uh, or I, I will be paid. I'm anticipating payment. What changes have you made in your wardrobe since 1999?
3: <laughs> well
1: i hadn't made any can i answer that <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah you can't you can't. I, uh i would do one quick story and then larry can rip on me but i actually really hadn't changed them since 1999 until i went out to seattle out there and and um, i went out in my midwestern business casual which you know dress pants and a some form of a shirt but not shirt and then i I went out there and I had black shoes. So it's kind of like a suit outfit without the the coat. And um, someone took me aside that had been out there for a while. And they said, hey, you really can't wear that. And it was kind of awkward for them. And I I said, well, why not? And they, they go, well, if you don't wear jeans, then they think you're trying to be, you know, cool or, you know, act like an executive and they don't like that. So you have to have jeans and they can't be, you know, worn jeans. They have to be, dark jeans and the shirts you have can't be like solid colors they have to be checkered and stuff like that so i had to go out and get new clothes so true story that happened about two years ago so i've updated my wardrobe since but
0: oh yeah so i have a add-on question here before larry uh, at this commentary um do you have any university of michigan t-shirts that are 20 years old or older yes okay
3: <laughs> who does That's most of his wardrobe yeah <laughs>
0: Who doesn't? Yeah, I know. Okay. <laughs> Larry, did you have commentary or do you think uh, they've said enough?
3: No, he's good. What, what I would say is obviously we have a laid back culture. And it's funny when we have our company meetings, um, we'll have new hires that maybe haven't been to one of these things before. And somebody forgets to tell them that we are in shorts and sandals and they'll show up in like a suit. And uh, one poor guy, he's been working in this company where he wore French, you know, cuffs, uh, you know, like six six days a week. And I saw him like, dude, please, (laughs) you've got to stop. Um, The next meeting I saw him, he showed up with a sport coat, but underneath he had a hoodie on. uh, So he got the (laughs) message. (laughs) That's pretty funny.
0: All right. So, you know, my next question was going to be about some of the big changes in Centric over the last 20 years, about the type of work we do and how we fit in the marketplace. The stories you've already told, you know, I see this thread going through our history. You know, in a lot of ways, it seems like you know we, we've built on that and we, we work in a very similar way. But what do you see, maybe that is different about just how we work?
1: About the way we worked uh, now versus the way we worked back then? Yep. Hmm. That's an interesting question.
0: I mean, skipping I, it, the parts about people sleeping on, you know,
1: recliners. I'd still sleep on requires Uh, the um, no, I think uh, it's funny. I I hadn't really thought about it. I think people do. There's similarities today versus when we started, which I think are kind of interesting. The the project teams are pretty tightly, tightly knit, a collaborative, non-hierarchical, you know, relationships between people. That's certainly how we operate at the very beginning. And, you know, I I think that continues today, which I think is important. But certainly I I would say what's new, you know, just a matrix organization and pulling in service offerings to to assist and uh, IVs to assist. And it's more complicated to bring the right team to bear on a project. And, you know, 20 years ago, there was fewer technology options. It wasn't quite as uh, complicated to bring people in. Smaller organization meant you were much more self-reliant, I guess. Today, I think, you know, there's an element of kind of navigating our organization a little bit, which can be, um, you know, intimidating in some ways for people that are uninitiated. So those those things are different, but, you know, I think it's the right thing that
3: we're doing as well, so. I I would answer it in a couple of different ways. Um, The the first stuff, the stuff that hasn't changed that Dave was alluding to is kind of our core values and core purpose of what we're all about. That hasn't changed at all and that's why everybody's here and excited about it but in terms of how we operate our business and in the market i would say it's evolved which kind of had major evolutions over time Um, so dave hit on one of those which is service offerings and industry verticals we added those gosh 10 15 years ago and that was a significant change for us that you know really helped us in the marketplace and then another one was when we added centric india Um, which gave us opened up a whole new way to do business for us how to operate and do that this way and then we just went through and we've we've set a vision for the next 10 plus years where we're trying to be in every city in the u.s and be a nationally recognized brand and it's kind of cool i can see a line of sight to that i couldn't have seen that 20 years ago so i think we'll continue to evolve
4: yeah i think a lot of the stuff we did early on in fact i remember i think columbus was primarily doing uh, java and net development and uh, when I started I was like, Larry, I don't know that stuff and I don't know how to sell that stuff. He's like, I yeah, just go sell whatever you can and which is kind of what I did. It was more random. it's what you happen to know individually, what you think you could do personally sometimes you're even selling yourself or the people you know but potentially more individual roles and maybe a little bit more random in nature and the evolution of driving to project in Things that start more at the strategic thinking of the client and drive out their strategic initiatives that might be more team-based, that evolution has continued to happen is really kind of the, the path forward for the future. Putting all the connectors in between our individual offices so that it's not just a bunch of random offices in different cities, but each one has its own personality, but yet kind of pulls together as a the kind of a more cohesive delivery model. That's, you know, that's the big difference now, and that's where we're putting a lot of our emphasis.
0: Great. We took the Wayback Machine before, now we're going to push it to the future. In 1999, if you look back, you talk about the explosion of, of PCs and globalization of the economy. Today, if we were doing a, a retrospective, we'd talk about disruptors, dot-com businesses, and smartphones. So let's go to 2039. Uh, any guesses about what we'll be looking back at?
3: <laughs> Don't uh, let Dave answer well, this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Dave still has a fax
3: machine. Eric and I actually have a bad <laughs> um, that I think is I think it's 2025 Eric that I'll be able to get an a uh, autonomous vehicle and drive from my house 30 miles to downtown Columbus and put it in the parking garage isn't that it
2: yeah self-driving uh, thing and that it's amazing that bet is over
3: five years old now I keep pushing sure. the years out uh, to <laughs> yeah. that. Um, but what I would say so <clears throat> the guy that's actually the best at this is a guy named Rick Kurzweil I think he's the chief science officer at Google now. Um, But he had something like 20 years ago. They tracked his his projections and he was like 80% right. So things like natural language processing he predicted 20 years ago and that kind of stuff. So I like to look at his stuff um, to try and guess 20 years out. and, And what Eric just said is right. He's talking about singularity and biotech and for those that haven't read about it, it's kind of slightly scary that singularity is kind of the merging of humans and computers and, um, you know, not in, hopefully not in a creepy way, but people don't know. And so kind of oh, the it's of the brain and um, yeah. all that. It's, and so it's just so hard because the technology is advancing so much, not only with technology, but also bio. Um, the synergies that are coming out of that, I think it's going to be mind blowing. And I think even Kurzweil will miss some of those.
0: Yeah, Kurzweil's a pretty scary guy. I, I, I disagree with him on the singularity, but that's just my point of
4: view.
0: <laughs> 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 Let's see how it all comes back to the Matrix.
4: It,
2: yeah, yeah. it does. <laughs>
0: we're we're all, already living in the Matrix,
4: apparently.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm not holding my breath for the singularity, but I but Larry's spot on. The the um, advances in, in biology, emerging biology and technology is, is happening quickly, and I don't know where it's going. I don't know what it means. Dave says we're going to be in a worldwide depression by 2039 that we'll never escape from. But I don't know if that's true.
0: So you're buying Sky uh, Net, Skynet stock, then, huh?
2: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know.
1: I don't know if it's that quite that bleak, but uh, yeah, no, I think there'll be um, a lot of difficult issues to uh, resolve as as, uh, as a country. So All
0: right. you've talked a lot about Centric being a. 100-year company so with those sort of visions of the future i know we're already doing a lot of things for the next stage next 20 years you know anything else about like how do you survive a worldwide depression
4: (laughs) to uh, keep keep
0: this being a hundred year company i
1: I think um the transformation right i mean if you think what is consistent over the years is if you can be as a company can be near the cutting edge or involved in, in helping companies transform you know to compete and and be uh, successful and with new technologies or new ways of doing things that in a lot of ways is the safest uh, job description you can have if you can help a newspaper transform to be online you know that's better than working for the newspaper while they're transforming so to me i think to the last hundred years you have to stay close and a lot of what larry's been leading with innovation i think is is us trying to to, to do
3: that and the other thing i would add is we we've just recently spent a ton of time developing our own leadership development program, which is really meant to create leaders that um, lead with our value system so that we can be multi-generational. And so if we're really good at developing people so that they can make decisions based on kind of that core value system, and we do the stuff that Dave talked about, that'll allow us to be a hundred year company because we'll make the right right decisions along the way.
4: you know, building upon that. And I think about when I started, you know, having come from Uh, An organization where people recognize the name and then going into a a company that didn't was a bit of a shock for me. And uh, thinking about what would define success and what would make the 100 year company, knowing that it would be defined more by reputation versus revenue. And I think, you know, not only have we continued to build the organization that way, we think that way. So revenue will come if you work to the right reputation in building out as a company that will serve everybody and help, you know, organizations where they need to be helped. Versus the best at selling this solution, or we work in only the biggest accounts and we're the best strategy firm ever. It's a little bit more comprehensive in terms of how we help our clients and build that reputation.
0: All right, great. Any last thoughts? I'm
4: I'm happy that now when we go places, we're actually allowed to get our own rooms, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and the idea, and it's it's not true every single year, but it seems like the last couple years we're trending that way but as we've done our leadership retreats, we've largely had to share rooms. I've slept in a closet before. I've shared boys camp and bunk rooms with people. And even when I started, you know, my wife I think was a bit apprehensive that the company I had just been in went out of business and I joined this other company she's never heard of or people she's ever really met and finds out that the CEO uh, is coming into the town and just wants to stay in our house with us. And, uh, She's like, well, what's, what's the deal? was like, got, it's just what he does. He comes in he you know, sleep on the couch. We've got an extra bedroom. Uh, we didn't have an extra bedroom, but I did kick my son out of his room. And uh, Dave slept in his room uh, when he was there's, in town. It was a he, Jeff, uh, Gordon Jeff Gordon. That, yeah, Jeff Gordon <laughs> who I
1: liked. I was a big fan of Jeff Gordon at the time. So,
4: um, yeah,
1: that's a true story. And um, I used to stay at uh, Larry's house. and. Um, I would just say that the, the Lloyds just I mean they had like little the small toothpaste things you know for me to use and a, like a hotel bar of soap for me to use as well really uh, set the the bar high I think for you know the, the what what kind of treatment I got when I stayed at people's houses
0: Are you saying that so. didn't match up on hospitality on on that area I, well, I would, would say, ask for
1: way, a, <laughs> a hotel. I would ask for a towel Dave.
3: Go ahead. go ahead, go ahead. My wife did not think Dave was a good guest. And so he became so afraid that he would just like stay in his room with the door closed and like throw out wrappers.
1: <laughs> no, it's not true. The, 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 uh, the, the, the truth is I'd be like, hey, man, do you guys have like a towel? And they go, yeah, no, I think uh, Zach, our son, left one on the floor over there. You could use that one.
0: <laughs> All right. So there you have it, the founding and early days of Centric Consulting from the men who were there. This has been John Cackley with Centric Biz and Tech Talks. Thanks so much for listening.